Culture Dumps. On with the show, folks. This is Ryan Lichten. I'm here with Parks Miller. This is part two of our Beanie Babies dump. Uh, what did we talk about last episode? So last episode, oh, you have dump. the... Yeah, 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 exactly. Lots of beans going into this one. Uh, you know, you have Ty Warner, the creator of, of Ty Incorporated and Beanie Babies, um, you know, living un- under the the shadow of his plush toy salesman father. His mom had her own, uh, you know, m- mental health issues. Kind of a tough life, not really going anywhere. Becomes this superstar toy salesman wearing fur coats, driving Rolls Royces, making uh, little girls pay for their own ice cream. Right. <laughs> and Exhibiting then, some, some, some personality traits of uh, the narcissist. Traits. Um, the shark, the capitalist shark, take no prisoners type of uh, uh, the, the, life the or mentality. Baby of Wall Street. Yeah, that you have to have to kind of become these mega successful people. And it's funny because I know, Ryan, you have you know the history in true crime. And whenever you kind of dive into like a serial killer or someone, like you kind of set up the childhood. And yeah, they had like the fucked right. up family life. And then they exhibit those things. And it's so funny because everyone kind of knows now, like when you get with like these political leaders or these CEOs of like these mega companies, it's, it's a very similar story. But because right. they ran a successful business, you can still kind of frame it in this way of like well look what they did the bootstraps and all that but really it's kind of taking away it's like well you know but ed gein he accomplished a lot he was a trailblazer (laughs) he got things done trailblazer for sure um, amongst um cannibal and wearer of dead women's skin um but hey who's counting right so (laughs) well they uh, usually are counting this but yes yes exactly yeah but uh, you know another thing that's interesting um that you bring up kind of the the relation between say a serial killer and a ceo this relationship like has been made before like by tons of psychologists kind of like the the power hunger that gets instilled in people whether it be financially in the ceo's case or just the the um ego trip that you can get on when you're in charge of so many people then you have the serial killer where it's like controlling like this what like this sexual thing generally you know and and controlling this this victim in order to give you the perfect fantasy it's like the ceo is controlling every aspect of their business and their employees life in order to give them this fantasy life um right you know and then when you're if you grew up in a unstable household and maybe you didn't have sort of a sense of stability or normalcy or control in your childhood, then sometimes that can be this thing that you're sort of forever coming back to. And it's like trying to like have that, that control or sense, right? You know, it, it will just manifest itself over and over again as your life continues. Exactly. So yeah, Ty worked, you know, he worked with his father at Dakin, the biggest, you know, plush toy company in the world, uh, quickly outsold virtually everyone in the company, including the CEO. Um, then, you know, he gets fired for trying to sell his own ideas to the clients, blah, blah, blah. It's bad business practice. Starts a couple failed companies, eventually starting Ty Inc. with his then girlfriend and business partner, Patricia Roche. Their relationship falls apart after they had, you know, found success in these stuffed cats that he made. The first one being named Cashmere. They made Beanie Bunny a smaller version of a plush toy uh, utilizing understuffing methods plus PVC pellets as opposed to uh, the normal things that a, a stuffed animal would be stuffed with like cotton or fabric or sawdust in some cases and then his relationship with Patricia Roche ends their business relationship and personal and here we are so 
1993, Ty Warner had raked in millions of dollars, read several self-help books, and found himself a new girlfriend 14 years his junior. Things were going great for the toy mogul and were only getting better. Ty met Faith McGowan while searching for extremely specific lighting fixtures for his new home. According to employees of Ty Incorporated, Ty had an obsession for lighting and that extended to all aspects of his life, much like his attention to detail and craving for mm-hmm. perfection. Uh, he would go so far as to memorize the serial numbers of his favorite light bulbs so he could easily instruct his workers to change the lights at the office, warehouses, his home, and most importantly, at the multiple trade shows his company participated in throughout the year. He would literally walk in and say like we need xb 7707s up in there like why, why are we using mm-hmm. you know 2x45s whatever the fuck you know and like with light bulbs and to be able to have the eye for that is very impressive and also frighteningly psychotic <laughs> like, <laughs> like i don't even know folks we've been doing a podcast for for almost you know four or five years something around there like right in that pocket i don't even know the model number of the microphone i use I, we I, should. We should, <laughs> but we, we should. I know Parks just looks so disappointed at me. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm using a fucking. I'm using an SM58, which for all you band folks is like the classic mic. I'm using it's a. I'm, I'm, I also am using a Sure, but I believe it's like a SM35 or something. It's for public speaking and it has an Ooh. on-off switch. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So so then now there you have it, folks. Uh, make sure you share this to Sure's Instagram page so we could get a <laughs> sweet sweet sponsorship. Anyway, <laughs> so according to Faith, Ty approached her at the lighting fixture store where she worked. He was looking for a lighting setup for shelves at his home. She visited his home personally to see the job and realized that what he wanted was not possible. And after proving herself right, Warner was impressed. He began telling her slightly well in some cases slightly in a lot of cases highly personal things about himself and his life including sexually explicit stories from his last relationship with Patricia Roche and his many plastic surgeries which I didn't mention in the last episode Uh, he left out the parts where he secretly recorded his girlfriend only to show her the tapes years later and also him taking a surprise trip to Cancun to surprise her and her new boyfriend uh, in a gesture of frightening possessed you know obsessiveness but yes Ty Warner had several plastic surgeries um even before beanie babies he became kind of obsessed again this eye for perfection this eye for detail it became something that eventually stretched to his physical appearance and according to um mcgowan you know faith mcgowan is his girlfriend that we're talking about now like he would get surgeries and like look so fucked up that he would then have a surgery to like tone it down a bit like oh like God. yeah it's it's really crazy it seems and, like, like it's addicting right like that's the thing with the surgeries is almost seems like that becomes its own sort of addictive lifestyle. Of just In Ty Warner's case, perfection is the addiction here. Mm-hmm. Another thing that Ty had done during this initial meeting, because again, all of this stuff coming out about these sex stories and his plastic surgeries, this is within like the same day of them meeting and her coming to inspect this house he was having built. And one thing Ty would do with his homes and eventually his offices and warehouses and stuff is he'd be consistently remodeling almost like the Winchester mystery house always building on always adding something something was always underway that would keep him from actually working in his office or sleeping in his bedroom there would always be some project going but he's telling her all this stuff and as he's showing her around and she's proving to him that the certain lighting fixtures you know and stuff he won't want she then starts asking um for payment for like the consultation and he like 
very like sleazily tries to like get up. It's like, oh, we're just having fun. I didn't know like you were on the clock, kind of a thing. Oh, and again, God. this guy is a fucking million multimillionaire at this asshole. point. Yeah, and he's still like getting this poor lighting girl. But anyways, Ty also showed McGowan his unfinished bedroom where he had her personally inspect each of his high end pillows while telling her about his dysfunctional upbringing and early career highlights. McGowan soon found herself falling for the eccentric businessman and began dating him. These women. Like I'm sure he was a I'm sure he was a eccentric enticing guy with a lot of money but like what a freak. It's the power. People are people are drawn to power. You know? I, I guess I guess so. And you know when when you read interviews with with Roche or McGowan, they seem completely self-aware and like realize that all the weird stuff was weird and seem to have when it was happening. Um well, let's it's say, a very let's interesting say thing. Let's say a a dating candidate borderline psycho they know the serial numbers of light bulbs extremely manipulative narcissistic if one of them doesn't have any money or if one of them has a ton of money are you gonna be able to overlook it if they're a millionaire (laughs) i'll take i'll take the the crazy millionaire yeah (laughs) i'd rather be like stabbed to death by like a super nice knife than like a shitty one you know like (laughs) (laughs) kind of the thing here but so Another thing that he convinced her to do was when he found out how much she made at, at for the lighting fixture place that she worked where they met, uh, he was like, you need to demand more money. You're putting in so much more work. You're so much better at this job. And like, gave, like got her all fired up and gave her all the things to say as a successful businessman himself. And she went in there and did that and just got fired. And like, and, and, and like very quickly fell <laughs> way behind on her bills, daily mm-hmm. expenses. Because McGowan, she had two daughters. So she's, you know, like... All of a sudden, no money's coming in. So when she tells Ty this, he asks her, like, exactly how much money are you behind? And she tells him, like, well, basically, like, I'd be at square one if I had X amount. So he writes Mm -hmm. her a check for that amount to the penny. Not a penny, not a cent more to like get this woman he's now dating that he's trying to do this nice gesture for. And not only did he give her this check, but he put it in the hands of a little teddy bear. Like here, here's enough to pay the phone, the electricity, the gas and uh, get some food for your kids. But I'm not giving you a cent more to get yourself something nice or anything like that. Now, I am not a sugar daddy, but I imagine (laughs) I'm like a salt daddy. (laughs) I, I feel like this what this this paying exactly and not a penny more that seems like that would be like a common thing on like a sugar daddy memes page it's a power play it's another (laughs) manipulation you know it's like no no you don't have to have a job you don't need any of your own money i'll take care of everything and what you're doing that's you're not giving them a living you're just making them more dependent on you yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it's what a pimp does it's like you don't need to worry about anything as long as you're with me if you don't have me you have to worry about everything and that's kind of what's going into it so not only did ty enter a relationship with faith but also her two daughters Ty now had an inn with some children who he could grill about the details of his plush toys. There would be several dinners where no one was allowed to leave the table until a name for a toy was agreed upon or a change was agreed upon or a design. Um, There's one time specifically mentioned in the book that we got most of this material from. Again, the great Beanie Baby Bubble written by Zach Bisonette. Um, 
where they talk about being at a Boston market and like they're all done. The food, like their plates are just sitting there and Ty like would not let anyone get up from the table to go home or use the bathroom or anything until the name for the frog beanie baby was created and they decided on legs, legs, the frog. So that is the very first actual beanie baby. But Ty became obsessed with this new project and beanie babies quickly became the cornerstone of most of his interactions with his family, friends, anyone that would talk to him. And he would always, you know, even if you're the lowest level, like grip guy setting up the table at a trade show, he would ask you like serious questions about like the development of the products and stuff. He always got input from everyone. Not that he always used it um, and not that, you know, he wasn't going to just totally steal your idea if you had a good one. But he, the, the thing was, he was always grilling people about about this toy and Beanie Babies especially. Now, it was late 1993 when Ty met with Bill Harlow, who would become the head of Ty's Canadian branch. Ty pulled an understuffed frog toy he called legs out of his desk and told Harlow from now on every penny goes into this project. Harlow was younger and less experienced than the other people Ty had considered for the position but was chosen because of his ability to be molded into the perfect rep in the eyes of Warner. And Bill saw this happening but he's like well it's the difference between making 30,000 a year and 2 million. You know so like he's just like whatever whatever this guy says goes you know. Right. And not not for years would would Bill ever even question any of the stuff that that Warner said. And even when he did years later, it was kind of just like, uh, yeah, well, shut up or I'll fire you. <laughs> you know, this it's is like a, this is just a classic U.S. American story is what we're. this is at. the dream. This is the American dream. <laughs> yeah. I dream of Beanie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, I'm nailing it today. All right. So the time had come. It was time to unleash his creation. Along with Legs the Frog, Ty released eight other Beanie Babies in the initial run. There was Brownie the Bear, Chocolate the Moose, Pinchers the Lobster, Spot the Dog, Squealer the Pig, Splash the Whale, Flash the Dolphin, and Patty the Platypus. Patty was named after his ex-girlfriend, original business partner in Ty Incorporated, Patricia Roche, and he would jokingly refer to it as Patty the Puss. (laughs) <laughs> and talk about how it had a big oh beak and it, yeah yeah uh, so patty was immortalized as one of the first beanie babies a platypus okay <laughs> i like, had i had a pincher's the lobster that's bringing me back i had like bro three, dude where I, is it now <laughs> do you have the tag protector on it <laughs> oh my god it was definitely so, not original or rare but no, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we'll we'll get into all the different reasons why a Beanie Baby would become rare, why it wouldn't, um, all, all that kind of stuff. So in November of 1993, at the Smoky Mountain Gift Show in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Ty debuted his creations. Already setting the stage for the limited supply-driven sales model, Ty only allowed orders for two of the nine Beanie Babies. That would be Brownie and Patty. This was not because the other babies were unavailable or not ready for release. It was to give the appearance of scarcity and a demand that did not yet exist so it's like oh yeah like this is how great this is unfortunately no we we, we can't give you these ones yet we only have these two but when these ones come out like trust so people are like well damn like didn't even have these available for the trade show it's already creating this thing but it's that nft shit yeah and and again creating the scarcity it's still not at the final form that this um this business model would, would reach but it's but he's honing it's getting it in. there the shark is circling yes Yes, the bubble wand is dipping into the soap right now, about to blow yes. the the big bubble up. Uh, the is big essentially bubble. what's happening. Yes, <laughs> the, the big beanie, beanie bubble. bubble. 
Yes, the exactly. <laughs> now, Beanie Babies were not the end game for Ty. He envisioned them as an easy way to build capital for whatever his next big idea might be. At first, it seemed he was gravely mistaken as far as the popularity of the Beanies. Sales were incredibly slow, with some buyers asking for only half of the minimum orders, which would be six instead of 12 of each at a time. Uh, and Warner was discouraged but not defeated. With a wholesale price of $2.50 a piece, he knew that things would turn around. And eventually he gave in to these people wanting only half the order because otherwise he wasn't making any orders on them. And again, because these toys, when they came out, they looked while they were of a higher quality material, they looked shittier. They were understuffed. People didn't, they, they were like a bean bag, which, you know, people throw through like cornhole boards and stuff. Like it's not seen as something that you would keep necessarily it's, in the it, house. Even it's kind of droopy, you know, if you're yeah. used to the stuffed kind of rigid, I mean, soft, but rigid form, of the say exactly. teddy bear or whatever. It, it looks kind of like it's kind of sad and slouchy or I mean, you know, it's just a new product is what it is. Right. So it's a new like, style. Well, yeah. And, and, the and they I'm were small. To. It's not going to work out. Right. Exactly. But eventually he gave in and sales began to climb uh, a lot. And Ty Inc. the next year in 1994, a year after they debuted, they made twenty eight million dollars. So uh, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good investment sticking around with the Beanie Babies. But now let's let's briefly discuss the psychology behind limiting product availability in relation to a soaring collector's market. So in 1995, there was a published study on this phenomenon called Framing the Deal, the role of restrictions in accentuating deal value, which essentially means the less you make available, the more people will pay for it. Um, and it found that, yeah, by limited production and availability, the demand and assumed value of an item in question would increase. One of the guys that kind of like formulated this model way back in like the 60s and 70s was actually the guy that started the QVC network and, and like television shopping and direct to market or direct to consumer advertising, stuff like that, where it's like, buy now only for the next 10 minutes. Can you get this thing? It's like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? But it yeah. started with um, making like commemorative silver coins when they found when he found out that they were going to be discontinuing the silver, uh, like the 50 cent piece or the silver dollar. He was like, well, shit, let's make like commemorative ones. You know, that also have some, right. you know, value because the way the price of silver and blah, blah, blah. And then that turned into commemorative plates like Norman Rockwell uh, paintings on these collectors plates became a thing, starting limiting those. And then people started creating creating this collector's market. And uh, that that's where that kind of comes from and that will come into play again folks we're going to be going be, there's not too large of a span of time that we're covering but we will be jumping back and forth between a couple years so just keep that in mind but one of the first instances of Ty purposefully uh, purposefully discontinuing or limiting pieces of the Beanie Baby line was with Teddy the Bear where the facial structure was changed on the second run of the bear this established the old face Teddy and the new face Teddy making the old face much more valuable in the eyes of collectors another was adding wings to quack the duck this practice of limiting or ceasing the production of certain Beanie Babies would be brought to new heights when the King Brothers a team of three brothers who worked in the southern branch of the Thai Inc. sales department were working a trade show in Atlanta. One of the most popular beanies in the line at the time was Lovey the Lamb, and it had been discontinued due to manufacturing problems in China. Retailers were upset that one of the top-selling toys was not available, but the brothers, always quick on their feet, told buyers that Lovey had been retired. Yeah, and that's and where it starts. And it, and it wasn't... Yeah. 
because they didn't want to give the idea that it's like, oh, at any point in time, any of these toys could just become unavailable because we don't have it. We don't have it locked down with our manufacturers. You know, they didn't want they didn't want to make any uh, reference to the fact that they're having business trouble. So they come up with this idea of them being retired. And these brothers, by the way, they called themselves RBT. That was like their team name. And it was rich before 30. RBT, (laughs) bro. That sounds like some like new shit, like RBT gang. Yeah, yeah, fire. Yeah, dude, that's fire, dog. RBT gang. Yeah, squad. But um, yeah, rich before 30. It's also kind of like a billionaire boys club, kind of like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, like kind of like, like, yeah, bro, like get that fucking sale. But their parents actually worked in a gift shop where they sold uh, gnomes and precious moment like figurines and like hummels and stuff. And those would be retired just because, you know. The, the molds would be broken or, or something would happen. They would, they would retire them or only make limited amounts or, or what have you. And that's where they right. got the idea from. And it was something already in practice. Right. But it's interesting because just the word retired, I mean, that's something that I remember from Beanie Babies is the whole hype about them being retired. And again, it's just that slight change of the wording, whereas discontinued is still, you know, that's used very commonly in collector's items and to indicate rarity. But just being just calling it retired is something that does feel a lot more specific to the Beanie Baby itself. So it's giving it that uniqueness that exactly. I think helped drive this hype. And also the idea of something being discontinued kind of um kind of presents like the idea that like it wasn't doing too well or or mm-hmm. it had outlasted its welcome or what have you. Retired Retiring like, gives you the idea that it's like, dude, if I don't buy this one like fucking right now, like they could retire it tomorrow. And right. then the retired you know, is like that the pinchers, the lobster, like had a good run. And now it's going to, he's going to, going to go hang out in Miami now, you know, it's right. retired. Yeah. It's dignified. It's retired. <laughs> yeah. And then they have to go pull him back into whatever work pinchers, the lobster was in. He's like, I'm getting too old for this shit. They're like you're the only one that can do it. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, they pull him out of retirement. So on October 29th, 1997, the most infamous beanie baby of all time was released. The princess Diana bear known as princess. The idea came from Ty's girlfriend, Faith, but he, of course, kept the credit for himself, and it was immediately assumed among collectors that this bear would be extremely limited, and before it was retired, the bear was being sold for several hundred dollars apiece, and in some cases, several thousand dollars. It was not that valuable. There there were Beanie Babies at the Beanie Baby peak, and even now that are worth far more than the Princess Diana bear ever was. There were so many of them made, and the reason why they... But again, it had this... Kind of because Princess Diana had died that year, right? So, so there was like I mean, a memorial aspect. There was they're not going to make these forever. Why would they make a memorial Princess Diana doll two years from now? It, yeah, it already feels like the writings on the wall in terms of the retirement, the discontinuation of it. But then also tapping in. Exactly. I mean, the Princess Princess Diana's death is certainly like one of those top ten like '90s zeitgeist kind of like defining moments of an individual. In oh, the completely. 90s. So, I mean, capitalizing yeah. on that, it's a very, it has to happen in a very specific time. It needs to happen quickly when it's on everyone's mind. So, again, he's tapped in. He knows what to well, do. Well, Faith McGowan, his girlfriend, was tapped well, in. Well, yes. But, <laughs> but he knows I got to take my girlfriend's idea, steal it, and run with it 110%. Yes, and maybe I'll buy her a nice gift or dinner, or like pay I'll another buy her a month of her rent so yeah. she relies more on me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sick bastard. Give give but, her like the credit one on one. Be like, you're so fucking smart, babe. 
you know, but yeah. Really- <laughs> yeah. And then the next day he's on Newsweek holding one up. But uh, yeah. the, the thing is, they made tons of these. They weren't limited at all because they donated all of the proceeds from the sales of the Princess Bear to Princess Diana's charity and her foundation. So they raised over $20 million for that charity, which is a good thing. Don't get me that, that is a good thing. But also kind of the idea of like capitalizing on on a, you know, death of an extreme celebrity, right. along with stealing the credit from his girlfriend. There is some negative stuff uh, woven into the story of the Princess Diana bear. But if you ask anyone, I mean, that is the thing. I have a Princess Diana bear that I had since I was a little kid. It's the only one that I keep like at my house with all my other collectible shit. And it's in like like a protective box and has like the hang tag cover. Yeah. And anytime someone comes over for the first time, they're always like, oh shit, is that a fucking Princess Diana? Like I'm sitting on like a fucking gold mine and I'm just living in this small apartment as it accumulates value. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe so. You never know. You might as well hold on to it at this point, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. What <laughs> maybe, I- maybe so. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Exactly. Now, right around this time, he also stole an idea from his girlfriend's kid. Um, he, he had an idea for a ghost beanie baby, but he didn't know how to make it. So she literally drew a picture of a ghost and was like, this is how it should be um, my mom's boyfriend. And he was just like, oh, wow. Like, yes, I'm going to do that. And I'll, you know what I'll even do? I'll put your name on the tag. Next run of them, your name's not on the tag. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like he would give people you know what like, intellectual property taste. is. No? Okay, great. Yeah, and then he just shreds the like crayon drawing so there's no proof. Like <laughs> you know, burns it and burn after Melts looking at the crayons. At... <laughs> exactly. Kills the girl. Jesus. Uh, but you know, the thing is that the act of doing that, for instance, having the little girl's name on the tag and then taking it off later, now the ones that came out that had the name on the tag were Super considered more valuable. And at this yep. point in Beanie Babies, we're not talking like all of them are hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, but like for someone buying up, say, 10 of the same one, for them to jump, because again, beanies were being sold for $5 or $10 if they were one of the, like a larger, kind of more stuffed animal looking one but the beanie babies as we know them that's like a five dollar beanie right there if it's a commemorative one maybe it'll be 10 but so people would buy up a ton of them but then you'd be able to sell each of them for like 40 bucks 25 bucks even even if you're doubling your money it's a pretty good racket you know and little things like a tag change would lend itself to being you know more valuable but the only way that mcgowan herself and her kids were making money from beanie babies was because they owned a kiosk in a local mall that sold them and they made so little money that they closed it until the manager of the mall after beanies had picked up again or finally picked up in like the mainstream way called her and was like you need to open up the kiosk because again they didn't sell in toy stores or anything it was like hallmark stores mall kiosks gift shops things like that so like that's what that's how you got your beanies and uh yeah she wasn't making like big bucks or anything for coming up with the most popular recognizable beanie baby of all time how demeaning would that be to be like you're dating this guy you're involved in these like you're influencing like the executive decisions and then you got to go out on the street and sell them just like any everyday loser that's getting sucked into the scam say you're dating mr starbuck 
And then you're like working behind the counter at a Starbucks. Exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, like maybe it's like, oh, you get to own one Starbucks franchise, say. Is the, that, you dude, know, that's years still, apart from what we're talking about. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's good money right there. No, right. this is nothing even close to that. Now, let's get into the OG collectors. We, we've started talking about what's what's making some of these Beanie Babies more sought after, more valuable. Again, we're not at full Beanie Mania peak yet, but there is a, a very distinct history of the collection itself in the collecting process. So in Glenview, Illinois, the owner of the collectibles and gift shop, the Cat's Meow, Richard Giornati, was introduced to Beanie Babies by pioneering collectors Becky Phillips and Becky Estensaro, aka the Beanie Beckys. And Giornati had experience selling small trinkets that climbed in value as their availability dropped, so he decided to create the very first collector's checklist. This didn't have pricing on it or value expectations. It was just a checklist so you would know that you had every beanie once hmm. that happens the tendency is to fill it up you know what i mean the more beanies you check off on a on a list the more you're noticing the ones you don't have and that's a right. you know marketing psychology type like thing. uh what was it the 50 state quarters and you could buy the yep the u.s the map of the u.s and then there was a hole for the quarters so you put them all in there once you've got them all so then yeah if you don't exactly. have idaho got to get that. right it's not it's not about finding out which ones you have it's about finding out which ones you need and that like exactly. so he he's he started that so now dr paula benchik abrinko and her sister peggy gallagher along with the two beckys are considered to be the first serious beanie collectors and therefore the first true authorities on beanie babies as a doctor, Ben Chikabrinko was conducting research about the effects of dialysis on pregnant women. She had to travel to and call several hospitals in order to complete her research. And after her call, she would then ask to speak with the gift shop employees, who she would ask about their selection of Beanie Babies. No one was really buying these or collecting them. They just were getting into this, seeing that, that it was kind of a popular thing. They saw that because there would be so few in stores, parents would come to the same stores they're shopping at and be like, oh man, they're out. And they'd be like, well, all I'll sell you the fucking camel for 10 bucks. And the parents are like, mm -hmm. great, whatever. Because again, yeah. the difference between five and $10 really isn't that much when you're talking about buying a stupid toy anyways. Exactly. So they start, they, they kind of start, they're starting this secondary market, this collector's market. And it starts with, you know, this woman doing all this intense hospital work in the making. Uh, can you connect me to the gift shop? by the way, because hospital gift shops were stocking these things. Um, and it was through hospitals that her and her sister started their legendary stockpile, which is a, a thing of legend, by the way. They mm -hmm. made a fortune. One of them eventually bought a Mercedes where the license plate said B beanies or like or it was like B babies. Or, or it was just like beanies. Yeah. Like I, I, but either or way, like she had a beanie baby in, vanity plate. B in babies or something. B -N -E. was, I, I'm pretty sure it was just like like B-N-E-B-B. Yeah. Now, while there were hundreds of deals and lucky scores the original four collectors made, there are a couple in particular that stand out. For instance, in 1996, while tracking down Humphrey the Camel Beanies, Gallagher contacted the German Distribution Center for Thai Incorporated and found that they had a large amount of the now discontinued beanie. She paid retail price for 198 of them, so she paid $5 for 198 Beanie Babies. I mean, each, right? Right. Lots, a big sum of money on Beanie Babies. One year later, each one of those 198 Camel Beanie Babies would be worth $2,000 in the collector's market. And she sold every one of them. It's a yeah. lot see, of fucking money. See, that's the thing is we're talking like mid-90s. Like this is, you got to get in early. 
You got to like, get in early. This, it doesn't mean shit Beckys later. Are on like some weird shit where they're like going against the grain, trying to figure out this like other thing. Like once you hear about it from your your coworker or someone every day on the street, it's already too late. Right. And again, you know, the thing with Beanie Babies is it's it's a toy. It's the intention is for your kid to play with it, to roughhouse with it, to sleep with it, to bring it with them everywhere, you know, to bring it to school, to trade because they're small enough to fit in your backpack and things like that. That's that was the intention. And you're starting to see this adult interest in them grow. And the more the adult interest grows, the less beanies are going into kids hands. Right. Because now it's not right. something you mess with. You don't you don't play with this right. stuff. You, yeah. It, that's it's very weird in that sense to be like this. Yeah, is toy, and it's kind of sad. It is totally. Yeah, it's not because. And then the other thing that I mean to be a little fucking hippie about it. It's like now it's not just like a toy that's supposed to bring a kid joy. It's about money, and now adults like give a shit about it. Exactly, exactly. And they're going into these places like gangbusters. Another big deal that they had was a uh, Chili the Bear, which she purchased thirty of at seven dollars each. Later, each one of those would sell for two thousand dollars. So it's just like I mean, it's an incredible amount of money. Um, and if you were in on the ground floor and you had these stocks, because again, there's people collecting these, but they're collecting them to finish off the checklist, you know, and they're, and they're only trading with each other or buying them from each other in order to complete their checklist. So they're getting these incredibly rare beanies, uh, just as a hobby. They're not collecting these incredibly rare beanies because they're worth so much money because they weren't mm -hmm. yet. And they, they had right. no concept that they, and that they would end up being like that. So eventually, the two Beckys and the sisters Ben Chickabrinko Gallagher created the first price list, which was based on their own assessment of the market. The list became available by mail order through gift catalogs and digest magazines, and the rest, as they say, is history. This first wave of collectors realized that there were small changes made to several beanies. One version of a beanie might have its name spelled a particular way, and then the next batch it would be different. Variations of fur patterns were also common changes made to the toys, which would immediately increase the value of the original model. The majority of these changes were not intended to stoke the market, but rather just a result of Warner's obsession with the perfection of his products. Ty had a love-hate relationship with the secondary market that was now fueling his over 200 million dollars a year business and very few decisions were made with collectors in mind. Now there were instances where Ty would kind of play with the collectors by retiring already hard to find beanies or beanies that were not selling well at all, all of a sudden to clear out inventory, you know, mm -hmm. like announce the retirement. But that made the process of how a beanie would be selected for retirement unpredictable and it, it became like like gambling like like stocks or mm -hmm. something you know where, where right. you really couldn't guarantee um an investment in them so and he so, kind of liked that because he I, it, right. in ty's mind it was it's still a toy for children yeah so it's it that is an interesting kind of like the economics of what he's doing so essentially he's still just making the like five or six you know bucks per beanie baby you know flat out so he's not right. actually i mean like really engaging in this whole like price gouging sort of thing but he's influencing it so that when things become popular then those it just fuels more sales of his you know five dollar initial product right. so yeah it's just funny he kind of needs it but then it's also like he has this weird relationship with it 
Right. Well, he was getting pissed because, you know, it's like, damn it. These are like toys. Like, I like I like, yes, I'm crazy. And like I'm putting all this painstaking effort in, into making these toys. But like these aren't for people just to like put on a shelf, like in a bag to like save. Like, you know, it's like I, I made right. them durable but, for, for a reason. But I don't buy it because you if you're retiring it, you know exactly <laughs> what the fuck you're doing. You know what I mean? You can, right. It's almost well, like you can play the play the devil's advocate on the back end and then be yes, like, no, yes, yes. these are toys so that you're appearing publicly not complicit with this more capitalistic kind of the collector's right. money market side of it. And you, and, can still you know, seem like the good guy. And he knew that if he did a change to something, like for instance, the, that camel that I talked about, that one of the mm-hmm. the sisters had bought from Germany, like almost two hundred of them, and then sold them all for two thousand bucks a piece, they were discontinuing that camel because the legs were so long that it took up too much room in shipping, and they're like, it's just not worth it. So like mm-hmm. they changed they changed it. It was things like that. But then what would happen is if he made a beanie that was not doing that well retired you know then all of a sudden everyone's going to rush out to get that one it was a way of clearing inventory but then there was plenty of instances where some of the most popular ones that he had no reason to retire at all he would do that just to kind of like throw off the market and then all of the dead stock was just stored in a warehouse it's not like they sold them until they ran out and then retired them there was no plan timeline for creating them and destroying them they would just like nope it just stops here stop all shipments stop all selling like pull them from the shelf send them back because if you start selling the dead stock retired that's just gonna read as very sleazy yeah like if people knew that but it's okay because he's making money hand and foot. And then he's also, if the production cost of these things is, you know, he's been keeping these costs low. So yeah, if you sit on like, you know, a couple pallets of some retired thing, it's ultimately not going to kill him that much financially. And oh, he yeah. knows that no, this he's just value for storage. Like, yeah. It's just like completely been added to the thing. So, I mean, it almost seems like, and I kind of read that like certain things like the giraffe or like he might have maybe initially even just maybe he did just discontinue it because it was literally he was thinking of it dollars and cents in this one element. Like we got to make the legs shorter so that right. we can save money. And then once the effect of that happened, then he was like, saw this, oh, shit, like this whole other secondary markets becoming. And then he probably then was influenced to like, all right, let's try some. Let's just retire one arbitrarily and, and just see, see what, what happens. happens. Right. Yeah. Well, and again, it's the RBT brothers, the rich before 30 bros that like kind of put, like, put a name to it. They're like, no, like we're retiring them. And by doing that, like people will go out and buy that one, oh you know? So that's the whole thing. Now with the increasing number of variations of already released beanies, along with the release of dozens of new beanies, collectors began self-publishing their own guides. This would surpass priceless and grow into full blown books. While Ty protected his brand through ruthless lawsuits, many of the authors of these books still managed to make a fortune. For instance, in 1997, Les and Sue Fox released their self-published book, The Beanie Baby Handbook, which sold over 1 million copies in the first year and placed it high on all of the country's bestseller lists. Now, I, in uh, doing my research for this particular series of Culture Dumps, bought the Ty Inc. membership kit. 
which oh, is insane. <laughs> and it comes with two different editions of the Beanie Baby handbook. It comes with a price list, a green book, a giant uh, sheet of stickers of, uh, with a sticker of every single Beanie Baby at the time, over 100 of them uh, by, the, by that point. And like uh, a little catalog and like a membership card and like a hang tag for your door that says Beanie Meeting in Progress. Do not disturb. <laughs> like I can only imagine what goes on in a Beanie Meeting. But uh, these books, you know, that they were all... It was all bullshit. It, it was all made up. Like, Les and Sue Fox, they got all of their info from the two Beckys and, and the doctor um, uh, and sister, you know, duo. Like, like in their price list and stuff. Like, they didn't come up mm-hmm. with any of this on their own. It was all speculation. And that's an old trick used by collector authors to keep people buying their guides. They, they The rule of thumb is to increase most things by 10% each edition of the book. Because no one wants to buy a book and find out that your shit is becoming less valuable. So yes. if you, so you know you would buy this 1997 or 1998 Beanie Baby handbook and it would be like oh shit by like 2010 this fucking thing's going to be worth $7,000. Like you know what I mean? It's not saying like yeah. no that's how much it's actually worth right now and only now, you know? Yeah. yeah. And they're written by just I mean these books when you read them, they they read like someone that's completely obsessed with Beanie Babies. So I'd like to read a short passage now from uh, from the Beanie Baby Handbook. This is, again, a New York Times bestseller, folks. This is a section in the introduction uh, little area. This is called Beanie Sociology. It hasn't happened yet, but don't be surprised to see someone offering a college course on the social impact of Beanie Babies. Why not? After all, beanies are found in a majority of American households. Many mothers even organize social events around beanies, like behavior rewards, birthday gifts, planned outings. In fact, beanies have begun to replace Tupperware as the topic of conversation among mothers of three to six-year-olds. Note, Tupperware is the perfect vacuum in which to store beanies. Conclusion, Beanie Babies may become a permanent fixture in the American social landscape, not to mention a worldwide obsession among both kids and grown-ups. Like, the, <laughs> just to get, and that's like on page one of like a over a hundred page book. Oh so it, it's, it's a lot of that. <laughs> but, you know, so, some of these uh, successful, you know, Beanie Baby stories like this, like the books, the people that made beanie baby adjacent things not necessarily the collectors and dealers themselves that made tons of money made more money that lasted longer than the people selling the high price beanies um you know like the for instance a guy that made a fortune was the one that to create the tag protectors eventually ty would create their own ones once they found out that someone else was doing it but it just mm-hmm. didn't work and the guy had already made like zillions of dollars um someone put in their life savings to make a beanie baby mania board game where like the beanie baby Babies in the game were actually like parodies of the collectors. So it was like Dan the single man, like Wendy the housewife, like and they would have little poems like for each of these characters where it's like, he's a maniac, he goes to the mall, he wants beanie babies, he wants them all. Like he doesn't have a girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but he's gonna be super rich, so just give him some time. But um you know, also like the cases that you'd put Beanie Babies in, that's where people really, really made the money. And actually, more books on Beanie Babies were sold between the years 1997 and 1999 than books about the Y2K scare were sold. Isn't that fucking crazy? The world could end, but I'm going to get the Beanie Baby handbook instead of the worst case scenario handbook um, because I'd rather know <laughs> what this camel mm-hmm. will be worth uh, in two years rather than how to like feed right. my family under atomic <laughs> unrest. Yeah, <laughs> But uh, there was a very interesting thing in the book that we got a lot of this info from where 
he related these people making a fortune around Beanie Babies uh, back to the gold rush of the 1800s where the people that really made a fortune, I mean, yes, there's people that struck gold and made tons of money, but that's so rare. But the people selling the shovels made shitloads of money. And like, right. that's kind of what he was saying. He's like, it's like selling shovels during the gold rush. Like, yes, you could risk it all mm-hmm. on the gold or just sell to all these millions of people looking for the shit. True. It's, I mean, you got, it's a crap, it's crafty shit. It's crafty right. shit. And now as this is happening, there's also Beanie Baby crimes, people counterfeiting them, people stealing them from stores, uh, either by force or otherwise, people snatching bags out of people's hands on their way out of a store. Like, like things are, it's starting mm-hmm. to pick up some, some heat. But during all of this, in Ty's personal life, he brings back Patricia Roche. Roche, now knowing everything she knew about Ty, came back with a vengeance, and her sole purpose in coming back was to get a piece of the Beanie Pie. His then-girlfriend, Faith, who by this time had undergone jaw surgery and intense fitness training at the request of Ty, had discovered that he had been in contact with the woman he had assured her was out of his life. She discovered he had bought a plane ticket for Roche to London, where she would be heading up Ty Inc.'s UK sales department. Originally, he had hired Jehovah's Witnesses to run that branch, but as we know, they do not have the best track record with sales due to their bothersome reputation. Um... As if Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door wasn't bad enough. Now they're knocking at your door with Beanie Babies. (laughs) It's like, yeah. But also he brings back this ex-girlfriend who he had a terrible falling out with, stalked her all the way to Mexico, recorded her secretly when she was like at her home with dates, you know, tried to rip her off financially, all this bad shit. Um, And she wasn't going to take any of the shit, but she saw that, hey, this guy's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year now. It might... uh, benefit you know me it might be a good idea to come back now so after many heated arguments roche was back in the fold but this time she wasn't going to take any more shit from ty when she left the company she was replaced by sharon altier who roche would have a very rough business relationship with eventually though the two came to a mutual understanding that they were both working for a madman and that struggle became their bond now there's tons of instances of there being like a big conference meeting where ty's at the head of the table all the ceos are there roche's on the phone in london um, you know, they have their Canadian guy, Bill Harlow, on the phone. It's a big thing. And Ty would be saying shit, and Roche would just say, like, eat shit, Ty. Or, like, oh, right. bullshit, Ty. And, like, just like, mm-hmm. and everyone would be shocked because, like, oh you just God. don't talk to the guy like that. You know, you don't, t- if you're right. working for a guy whose name is Ty Warner and fucking you're working at Ty Inc., like, you don't talk yeah. shit to him. But she didn't care. And he knew that she had enough bad shit on him. Not that she ever threatened that, but he just knew, like, Okay, like whatever. And she's also really good at what she does. Um, Again, she was making so much money in commissions at the start of their business relationship that he mm-hmm. <laughs> wanted to knock her down. Um, yeah. But she would, yeah, publicly reprimand him during meetings over the phone, conference calls. She would talk shit about him to other employees and kind of like break down the mystique that he had around himself because like he would come in one way and then Roche would be like oh please Ty seriously those shoes or like whatever the fuck like she just Mm -hmm. no fucks given at this point but this is also right around the time that Ty located his distant you know his his mother who again we had said drove away drove away years before this in his car which he had stolen he had not seen her since she had stolen that car he arranged for her to stay in a hotel suite and concocted an elaborate plan in which faith his girlfriend would disguise herself as a nurse in order to gain access like oh like yeah like she knew that Ty was putting her up in this suite you know like so she had a better place to live than whatever like convalescent home she was living in but then he's like oh like 
go act like a nurse so she'll think like I got you some help too but the mom caught on like right away probably because uh, she's just paranoid and was probably looking for that stuff you know and uh, it just failed miserably and she kind of like ran away again (laughs) and Mm. like he lost contact once again from from his troubled mother messy Yes. Now we're getting into a huge peak in the peaks and valleys of the Beanie Baby story. The Internet. One can follow the rise of Beanie Babies by following the rise of another major 1990s boom, the Internet. In 1995, most businesses did not have a website and those that did mainly used them as a way to make their contact information available to the public. Selling and advertising goods online was in its very early stages, but Ty, after a few years of convincing, decided it would be beneficial to create a Beanie Baby website, and in his eyes, the best person for the job was a college student named Lena Trevetti, who he originally employed to be a telemarketer for the company when she was just 19 years old. Basically, she's a college student. She's working there. I think her brother worked for the company as well in like a warehouse or something like that, and yeah, she's calling up all the stores do you need more inventory calling up new stores do you want to carry beanie babies blah 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 but she's young she's hip she uh is bringing up the internet every once in a while in conversations with him when he would make his rounds because again she was i think the 12th employee that he even hired like to work in the office and this is after they're making hundreds of millions of dollars it's a very streamlined operation and uh, yeah, he, he saw her as kind of the best person for the job. He's like, well, you're young. Uh, this is a new thing. Maybe you should run the website that you don't know how mm-hmm. to make for the mm-hmm. fucking biggest toy company on the planet. So yeah. Trevetti caught the attention of Warner after speaking her mind about some of the products. It was not uncommon for the toy mogul to ask his employees at random what they thought of a new beanie. Most of the time he would be given the standard looks good boss kind of answers, but in Trevetti's case, he would receive answers like those eyes suck or we should remove the tail. These comments would stop Ty dead in his tracks and earn Trevetti the respect of the boss. It was also Trevetti who told Ty that the hang tags were boring and that it might be more fun to include a short poem for each of the beanies along with the birth date on their hind tag. Ty jumped on this idea and instructed Trevetti to write a poem for the 86 beanies they already had in production. She oh. had three days to do it. <laughs> She's I a genius. poems on my desk by Monday. By Monday. Jesus. Yes, that, that's exactly yeah, what I, happened. And that was and, such an iconic. I mean, that yeah, I remember that. That was a big part of it. And then it's that's great for the for kids, you know, like yeah, the poem. It's this cute reading. thing. And it makes it, it makes them seem more unique. It's like here's the little story of yes. of all these little cre- critters, you know. Exactly. And at first, Ty was kind of like apprehensive again, this going back to his like keeping in mind that he was making toys where he was like, well, no, because that gives each beanie its own personality and kids won't be able to like be creative with them. And they're like, because eh, what was in the original tags that they always had the heart shaped classic hang tag, which mm-hmm. the design on the tag changed over over the years that you know they were being developed but originally it just said to and from on the inside of the tag they didn't have those Mm. poems so and then also the little hind tag on the back was just like the manufacturing information like that you have on all hang tags on like a fabric good or what have you but what this did instantly is now every beanie that's come out that already has a surging collector's market you know, like in a bubble that's that's welling up. Now all of those beanies that you already have are now more valuable. Every single one. Because in a sense, they've all been retired to have these new tags with the, yeah. with the poems. And, and the birth date being included on the hind tag as well. So now it's just creating like, well, fuck, now I have to get the new thing. So now people are buying the new version it's, of, you know. Yeah. 
This is so crazy because, I mean, I feel like some of these things that are happening with these manufacturing, you tweak it and then maybe you have a different tag and all these little different things. Like, I feel that's got to happen with a lot of toys. iPhones. And it just, like, doesn't catch the same way, you know? Yeah, like, no. I mean, people that like crazy. the toys that are playing with them will buy the new ones or whatever. But this idea that like but these that you are want valuable, the old one that you want the one that is no longer like yeah, obviously you say iPhone, but everyone wants the new one. You know true. what I mean? True. So yeah, like true. this is like every time you make a new one, it's making the old one more valuable. You know what though? Which every time a fucking new thing. one, a new iPhone does come out, it makes me want my older one more. Fucking yeah, me. yeah, I'll and that you. might become a thing. But, but again, as a collector. Yeah. Know, maybe, no, yeah. No, sure. no, sure no. We're going to start course. using old iPhones as whatever. Uh, of of course. And, you know, this also is now fueling a counterfeit market because, you know, it's easy to get toys manufactured in China, you know, if you have the capital. So people could very easily make rip off Beanie Babies and then they would they would purposefully make them with the original tags or like the birthday mm -hmm. list tag on the hind right, right. or what have you. And like they were, they would fake them and you would start seeing that coming out and there would be very specific ways. Like for instance, in this Thai ink membership kit, I have there's like, how do I identify your beanie? And it's like zeroed right. in on like specific fucking things, but it's oh all ridiculous. Like, and another thing that happened, um, like the bears were always kind of the quintessential beanie baby. They always kind of carried more value. Well, at least that was the, that was the misconception, actually. The there was Beanie Babies much more valuable than all the bears, but the bears tend to stand out in people's memories. There was mm -hmm. one called Garcia that was a tie-dye bear that had a little peace uh, peace sign embroidered on it. Right. They were sued by the Grateful Dead, and they ended up just changing the name to Peace. So then the Garcia versus Peace thing became yep, like a huge collector's uh -huh. thing. Again, it's just and it's all bullshit. It's all in the people's minds because tie is not changing the prices of these at all. If you go into the store and you buy the a Beanie Baby that is you know worth six thousand dollars on ebay you're gonna pay five dollars for it off the shelf like yeah. that that's how what it works yeah i know and we're just sitting here fucking talking about this shit like it's, assholes it's just so ridiculous i mean yeah i guess that's just the thing that will happen sometimes is once i mean not everything doesn't you know gather this much steam you know right. fads don't happen but when it does it's just it really feeds into itself and it's just that the pe once people think it it's happening one way and then it starts being confirmed by others, then your faith in it is going to feed into Falter, someone else's, yeah. you know? Well, definitely. But also let's just give it up for uh, Miss Lena for creating the idea of the poems. That's like one of the most iconic things about very, yes. the Thai Beanie Babies. And uh, I just think it's, it is a very impressive feat. I challenge you. You know what, folks? Actually, this is what we want. Email us your Beanie Baby poems, as many as you can come up with, <laughs> and we will yeah, back check yeah. them. But send us your original Beanie Baby poems. We will read them on uh, on an episode at some point, or the, the best ones. Now, Trevetti's next big idea after the poems and the birth date on the tags was to create a website for Thai Inc. The first obstacle she faced in doing so was obtaining the domain Thai.com, which is owned by a man in California who was trying to start a tech business. His son's name was Tyler. He named the website after his son. Warner sued him, claiming copy copyright infringement but he lost because they're like this has nothing to do with beanie babies and uh you get like you don't just own tie like you know right. those letters uh so he lost and he was ordered to pay upwards of a hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the owner of the domain uh for the domain first of all and for the <laughs> the guy's legal fees <laughs> like, like so but Jesus. you know as cheap and as notoriously frugal as we've explained 
you know, Ty Warner was, it's, it's, it was said that he was more than happy to hand this over because even then he understood that this was a small price to pay for what was going to happen next, you know? Mm -hmm. And so after he paid that, the website was born and the website was innovative for its time. It boasted newsletters, retirement and introduction announcements, message boards, and even animated videos of beanies making the announcements themselves. Now the customer service aspect of the site was also maintained by the voice of a beanie baby, much to the dismay of anyone with a serious problem (laughs) with the company. Oh my so God. on the website, the way it was back then was everything was coming from a little picture of a beanie baby. They'd be all different and they'd be like, Oh, like uh, I heard that um, a friend from the Arctic's coming in or it'd be like one of our sassiest <laughs> friends is uh, leaving for vacation. And you'd be like, okay, sassy. Uh, this cat's pretty sassy. Uh, and then rumors would start to start to fly. Wow. And sometimes Holy they would shit. just outright give you a date when certain ones were going to be introduced or not. So then people would get in good with their local gift shop owners, UPS drivers, fucking <laughs> anyone, even like insiders at the company on when and where these things are going to be delivered. It starts all these fucking you know problems but the funniest thing about the customer service aspect is you know these stores again these are small stores and you're only allowed to order say 12 of each beanie baby some 36 of each but you're not ordering boxes and boxes of this shit Mm -hmm. so when you run out which you inevitably would very quickly because again people are lining up the day that they see the truck pull up to your store, you would want to make another order and it would be delayed because again you never knew when delay when like shit was just going to be changed yeah. in your order or delayed for retirement or whatever. And when you'd email them, you would get like an email back where it's like, this is Sandy the snail. And uh, sorry, yeah. I'm so slow, but I'm a little snail. And like, yeah, like, like stuff like that. Penguin. Yeah. yeah or it's thought, like, sorry, yeah. I'm just a little ant and I got lost in our big warehouse. I'm sure your order's here somewhere. And like oh, these businessmen God. are like, what in the fuck is happening? <laughs> like, and like the animations that they had were very early. These are animations that would run on Shockwave, if you remember yeah. that. So you'd have to have Shockwave. Which, with something Less, we've talked about, it could be a dump as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. So. And like Java and like all, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most people didn't have computers or internet connection that were able to run that shit. So you'd have almost like a pay-per-view party to like watch the person with the best internet's shit. But so many people were watching that at a time. It like crashed the internet as a whole like you hear about breaking the internet beanie babies mm-hmm. broke the fucking internet yeah it, oh yeah it, it was absolutely a thing now while trevetti was maintaining the website for the biggest toy company in the world as well as manipulating the booming collector's market she was also attending college for sociology and being paid dude get this a whopping 12 dollars an hour <laughs> <laughs> she made $12 an hour for running the website of the biggest toy company in the world. Oh my god. Influencing the, you know, use of millions and millions of dollars across the world and she's sitting there making $12 an hour. So she later quit after requesting and being denied a salary which w- would totally be fair of $120,000 a year and she also requested a $60,000 a year salary for her brother who also worked at the company. They denied yeah. her and just like booted her. That's it. Boop. Now, another major website that would increase the popularity of Beanie Babies while simultaneously relying on them for their own business was the newly created eBay. Beanie Babies almost instantly became one of the most listed items on the site and dominated the toy section. There was even a Beanie subsection of the site until Ty Inc. sent a cease and desist for using the term Beanies, which by that point in time, uh, they pretty much owned. Yeah, (laughs) which is, you know, ridiculous. But collectors used the Ty website along with 
with eBay to see the market change in real time, much like the stock exchange. Collecting teams were assembled around the country with hunters going out to the stores with their cell phones while another team member manned the computer. So it's like if there's an, an introduction announcement or a retirement announcement, you know, or, or hey, I heard that this place just got a new stock of beanies. What are they looking like on eBay? What should I be paying? How much, how many of each should I be buying? And they made teams for this stuff. Intricate. Yeah. Again, yeah. And again, the two Beckys, the Beanie Beckys, are kind of the creators of that, along with the other sisters we mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's nuts. So by mid-1997, eBay had sold $500,000 worth of Beanie Babies, which was a huge percentage of their income. But while that was a massive achievement in the world of internet shopping, it only amounted to about 0.04% of the Beanie Babies being sold as a whole. That's, Damn. yeah, very, very crazy. And we've already talked about you know how how eBay kind of has a similar origin story to tie where the guy uh, just wanted to make money, but they came up with like a heartfelt story for it. Mm -hmm. Now the internet also provided a place for collectors and enthusiasts to share their stories of Beanie Baby triumphs. The stories did not always involve making a fortune. Some of these stories centered around marriages being saved or children selling their prized beanies in order to donate to charities. These warm and fuzzy beanie stories were compiled into several books. The most famous being heartfelt stories about Beanie Baby and those who collect them <laughs> which sounds like a, a great read now this is it this is the huge final gigantic push in making beanie babies the biggest fucking craze of the 1990s making a a hugely successful man out of a failed actor uh, and plastic surgery addict, uh, putting him on the list of the world's billionaires. This is the mega explosion. Now, the demand for Beanie Babies was at an all-time high as Ty became more involved with the manipulation of the market he created. A common practice was changing the maximum and minimum amount stores could buy, as well as slowing or, in some cases, stopping shipments of beanies that were already paid for. Retailers often found their orders altered by the time they arrived. This restriction of distribution created a Beanie Baby black market fueled by UPS drivers and warehouse employees stealing product or tipping off stores or customers as to which beanies were arriving and where. Eventually, Ty Inc. had to remove their logo from the boxes and they <laughs> that they used and they saw a dramatic drop in losses. And I guess uh, one of the employees oh, was... Yeah, well, he was quoted saying, like, hey, if you're shipping diamonds, do you put there's diamonds in this box on the box? And it's just so funny to, like, compare Beanie Babies to diamonds. But, yeah, but the losses were so great that they literally had to ship them in secret boxes to these gift stores. This you know? is, like, turning to, like, like, organized crime type shit. Like, so uh, yes. Boxes of beanies falling off the truck. Yes, and people are stealing them and everything else. Now, aside from all of these, the method of driving the collector's market that actually had a negative effect on collectors was Ty's practice of releasing an extremely limited beanie and then increasing the amount produced on the next run. Case in point, 1998's Aaron Bear, which I have. It was a St. Patrick's Day-themed bear. And yeah, he would, you know... it. It would make the customers mad at Thai Inc., but it wouldn't stop them at all. Basically, he was like, this is an extremely rare bear. It's going to be retired you know, almost instantly. Let's put it yeah. out. And then so everyone goes out and buys this bear, and they start pricing it, and, and they start selling them, and people start buying them from other collectors for 1000 bucks here, 2000 bucks there. And then next run of Beanie Babies, they come out with more Aaron Bears. And it's like, what the right. fuck? So now all the people that already have them that they've been sitting on to sell, they're now worth less. And all of these people that bought them thinking that they were going to be, you know, that they were buying this rare thing now got ripped off. So it's like, 
almost like a prank that Ty was playing on his customers. And initially, limiting the shipments had to do with manufacturing problems, but they soon began to capitalize on the effect that it had on the consumers. And another method of improving business was a series of frivolous lawsuits against companies that were, in Ty's opinion, ripoffs. So he would sue um, any stuffed animal company that seemed like they were ripping them off in a way. Most famously, he had a legal struggle with a company called Holy Bears that made teddy bears with little hang tags on their ears that had a prayer inside or a Bible passage. And all of that money from, from those bears went to charity, but he made this huge fucking lawsuit against them. And everyone was yeah. like, wow, what a fucking dick. Like, you know, and like the Holy Bears people were just like, well, we're saying a prayer for uh, everyone that's not getting a Holy Bear and also for Ty yeah, over but there. I don't trust the Holy Bear people. <laughs> I don't trust Holy Bear people either. I don't fucking either. trust them. Yeah, no, no, no. But the, at the end of the day, Ty was definitely suing left and right. Um, now, there wasn't too much Ty Inc. could do to boost sales. It was believed by Warner that by introducing his product to bigger retailers like Toys R Us, he would be cheapening his product and the collector's market would suffer because manufacturing would need to increase by a substantial amount. He also, in an attempt to maintain control of his brand, never agreed to any licensing deals. But in 1997, at the request of his vice president of licensing, Kristen Edstrom, he agreed to team up with the fast food titan McDonald's. And it's actually a funny story. Um, you know, Edstrom, the vice president of licensing, she got tired of saying no to like every major company. Like Barbie wanted to team up with Beanie Babies where Barbie would come with a little beanie or, beanie um, you know, Hot Wheels or like any like any mega toy company tried to do stuff mm. with them. Then like cereal companies like let's make Beanie Baby like gummies or like Beanie Baby cereals or candy yeah, yeah. or whatever. Then it's like, let's do T-shirts to sell at these stores. Um, they even were. Uh, offered a perfume or like a scent deal, like Beanie Baby scent. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck? Um, but right. he said no to everything. And she was like, look, Ty, like, I'm not going to be able to work anywhere else because I will have zero reputation of getting licensing deals because right. you say no to right. everything. And I'm the one that says no. So it's mm -hmm. like, what the fuck? So she, she kind of facilitated that. Now, Ty Inc. and McDonald's' headquarters were about five minutes away from each other, which is crazy. But that's not what introduced the two. McDonald's helped fund a health center not far from their headquarters called Wellness House. At Wellness House, there was a psychotherapist named Nancy Bianc who worked with children dealing with termini terminally ill family members. Bianc would use Beanie Babies as a tool to comfort the children. While visiting Bianc to observe her program, McDonald's communications rep ja Jane Holbert saw the beanies and immediately saw the potential in a licensing deal. This woman is explaining to these small children how to cope with the prospect of losing your mom or your dad or your uncle or your brother right. or your sister. It's very, very heavy. And she would use these beanies, you know, as a comfort thing and as like a tool and like, oh, like if we complete this exercise, you get this. And oh, well, tell me about that. And as they're talking here, would it make you feel better if it gave you this beanie? It's actually very, very sweet. And that is what a beanie baby was intended for. You know, that kind mm -hmm. of connection. Yeah. You know, now Ty, again, he turned down every licensing deal you could imagine from t even TV shows. Yeah, cereal, t shirts, perfume. And he was ready to turn down McDonald's as well, fearing that a cheaper, smaller, and lower quality toy might tarnish Ty Inc.'s reputation. But soon he realized that the majority of his business in America came from middle to upper class suburban moms. And by having beanies in McDonald's, he would be exposing his brand to a much broader nationwide market. Another thing Ty had never done was advertise on television. This 
This was an aspect of his business that Warner took great pride in. But the McDonald's deal came fully equipped with an order for 100 million teeny beanies, is what they were going to be called. That's approximately one per American household. And also a series of TV commercials. Now, the thing with introducing it to a, you know, a new customer base is is this. Yes, moms and dads were dominating the buyer's market because they saw an, an investment opportunity. So they're the ones scooping them all up, you know, and like these, yeah. you know, then you have these lower income families that, you know, don't necessarily buy toys that much. If they do, they are going to a big retailer. They're not going to these specialty stores where things tend to be more expensive. And especially when they're seeing on the news how much these things are going for, it's so beyond them. You know, it's like, again, like cryptocurrency now. It's like, oh man, if only I had known to buy this right. shit for like five bucks, you know, years ago, but like now there's no point, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but you know, McDonald's it's affordable for everyone. So he would show this and beanie babies being only $5 a piece. Anyone could really afford that if you're in the market for a new toy for your kid. So it was, it was a good, good plan overall. Now, almost immediately after their release, teeny beanies were in such high demand that McDonald's restaurants across the country had to make automated phone messages to keep up with the constant inquiries about their inventory. Most of the time it would say, uh, McDonald's, we have the moose and the seal. Like it was like that simple. Mm -hmm. um, in yeah. most restaurants, the amount of Happy Meals were limited to one or two per customer in order to not run out. There were reports of customers ordering dozens and sometimes even 100 Happy Meals, but instructing the employee to keep the food, which just throws <laughs> off inventory and everything else. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, but also like keep the food. It's like, it, it, that's crazy. But I remember my grandma doing shit like that because it really? was the quest. Yeah, it was the quest. I had all that shit. I still do somewhere, unfortunately. Uh, Beanie Baby message boards were flooded with tips and tricks to get around the limitations on Happy Meals, sometimes going as far to give instructions for disguises. Like you're going to wear a fuck, <laughs> like you're like a Ninja Turtle on the street with like the big right. coat and like mm -hmm. the nose. And it's like, you know, it's like already though, this shit, like it's interesting to me that people had to make disguises because like you would think the shame of going in and ordering like six happy meals, like multiple times a day would be enough to keep you from doing that. But it wasn't <laughs> like it, it was not. And in one case in Riviera beach, Florida, a McDonald's employee was arrested after stealing $6,000 worth of teeny beanies from her place of work. And the television ads that they had in mind never even aired. The demand was too much for them to even have to advertise this shit. It's, Damn. It's insane. Now, originally, it was thought that because there were so many teeny beanies produced, the resale value would not increase as it had with regular beanies. But due to the short time it took for them to sell out nationwide, that notion was proven to be false. People were selling their hoards online, but they soon found that while the perceived increase in value made the idea of stockpiling enticing, there were not enough buyers to even out the market. One bank in Chicago even offered a teeny beanie for anyone who opened up a savings account with at least $1,000 in it. But you had to keep the account open for at least a year or else you'd have to pay a hefty fee. But this is that's where the bubble crazy. starts starts to bust a little bit. Right. It is yeah. fucking crazy. Because right? that, that's like because they're offering it. And it's like, again, with just this assumption that this is, you know, especially from a bank where it's like you're trusting with your money. You're getting, you know, interest. Right. So like when they offer that, it's like sort of assuming that they have some idea or like the confidence that no, this this will also be an investment like us giving you this beanie baby. Right. But I, and when I say the bubble is beginning to burst, it's it's what what's happening is now everyone 
in the world knows that Beanie Babies could be sold on eBay or to a collector mm -hmm. for a lot of money. So now everyone's buying them. So the problem is if everyone has something that everyone wants to sell, there's no one left to buy it. Therein lies right. the problem that will come up uh, later in, in the story. So in 1998, McDonald's released a second line of Teeny Beanies, which was even more successful than the first run. And at the time of the 1998 release of Teeny Beanies, complete sets of the previous year's Teenies were being sold online for $200 a set, about 10 times the amount of money you would have to spend on Happy Meals to get a complete set at retail. There was only one other partnership that Warner allowed. In 1998, Ty Inc. teamed up with Major League Baseball and released the MLB-exclusive Beanie Baby, Cubby the Bear, in honor of the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs had lost 14 games that season, and attendance was greatly impacted. They should do a disco demolition again, you know, or a 10-cent beer night. But with the announcement that the first 10,000 fans would receive one of these exclusive and therefore seemingly valuable Beanie Babies, attendance exploded from 20,000 to just under 38,000, almost double. This was not the only time Ty Inc. participated in baseball. Beanies were given out at several other games, and it is estimated that attendance would grow 37% on those nights. The commemorative Beanie Baby given out at the 1998 All-Star Game, Glory the Bear, was named the 100th biggest person in sports by Sporting News. <laughs> yeah, he... he uh, Baby. I believe he either was just under or just past uh, Don King. <laughs> like, mm. It's like, insane. like to be beat by a Beanie Baby. It's like Pepe so, the Frog. It, that would have been a good <laughs> Beanie Baby. Yeah. <laughs> that would have gotten uh, Beanie Babies uh, canceled for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so by the end of 1998, it was official. Beanie Babies were no longer toys. They were investments. Warner always believed that kids came first. If kids were not playing with his toys, the company would fail. The bubble was growing and there was nothing he could do to stop it. But now jumping back to our good intentioned psychotherapist, Nancy Bianc, it was after the McDonald's boom that Bianc started noticing troubling trends amongst her patients. The program she ran at Wellness House ran for eight weeks. Upon the completion of the program, she would gift the patient the beanie baby that they had found comfort in. But she grew concerned when children she treated would come to her with instructions from their parents to ask for a specific beanie baby oh, or, you know, God. due to the perceived value. Like she mm -hmm. would literally have a kid who's preparing for their mom to die of cancer and she'd be like, okay, so like, do you want to take a beanie baby? He's like, well, my dad asked if I could take home Squealer the pig because it's worth a lot of money. Like, and she was just like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus, like, yeah, you know, and, and it's kind of a fucked up pipe dream because it's like, you know, especially in, in that instance, I don't necessarily blame the parents because if your kid is going through a program to deal with the loss of a terminally ill family member, like chances are there's a lot of hospital bills. You might not be from the most well-off family. You might not be in the best position financially. So the idea that like your kid could come home with something that could put five grand in the bank, like it, it's it's a pipe dream and it's fucked up. Yeah. But like it's, it's also a sick thing that's happening, you know, where – these people that are making a lot of money are presenting this idea to the people that didn't get into it at the ground floor that there's something to be made here and people are spending fortunes on these things and will lose that fortune. It's a bubble. It's a bubble. Yeah. I saw this video of like this, it was sort of like a documentary and this dad, he started collecting them and then he had like two kids and the idea was that he was going to sell them for like college tuition. You yeah, know? and people and, did but, do that. But he but he got like too addicted to holding 
to that beanie and collecting life more and he didn't sell them you know yeah because so again like, you you think like oh it, if it's worth this much one year later how much more valuable will it It'll be 10 be. years from now exactly. and what you see is beanies were being taken out of the hands of children and placed into the safes of adults and mm -hmm. that is where we are leaving you today in the beanie baby saga here folks next week on culture dumps we will have the conclusion of the story of ty inc and the beanie babies and ty warner and all that uh we'll get to where ty is at now how the bubble popped all that good stuff make sure you check out our patreon patreon.com slash culture dumps for exclusive content and tons of fun stuff also check us out on instagram at culture dumps and if you have a suggestion or a question or what have you send us an email over at culture dumps at gmail.com i'm ryan lichten and i'm parks miller if you ate it up we dump it out First I got Pinky, then I got Pinky. I got Pinky and Patty in the same week. What, Vanessa catch something? Teeny Beanie Baby items. Now at McDonald's, your kids can get Teeny Beanie Babies and a Happy Meal. Real Thai Beanie Babies in a mini size. To toss, tuck, or just plain love. One's in each $1.99 hamburger Happy Meal you buy your kids. This uh, Teeny Beanie Baby itis, will she outgrow it? Not necessarily. <laughs> McDonald's also has extra value meals starting at $2.99. After all, we care about big kids too.